Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Latino Studies. I'm David James Gonzalez, the host of the podcast, and today I'm speaking with Frank P. Barajas, author of Curious Unions, Mexican-American Workers and Resistance in Oxnard, California, from 1898 to 1961. That was published by the University of Nebraska Press in 2012. Dr. Barajas is professor of history at California State University, Channel Islands, where he teaches courses on U.S., California, the 1960s, and Chicano history. His research and... Welcome back to New Books in Latino Studies. I'm David James Gonzalez, the host of the podcast, and today I'm speaking with Frank P. Barajas, author of Curious Unions, Mexican-American Workers and Resistance in Oxnard, California, from 1898 to 1961. That was published by the University of Nebraska Press in 2012. Dr. Barajas is professor of history at California State University, Channel Islands, where he teaches courses on U.S., California, the 1960s, and Chicano history. His research and writing focus on agricultural labor in Ventura County, community formation among Mexican-Americans and people of color, ethnic politics, and social justice movements. Another interesting fact uh, about Professor Barajas, he received the Latino Leadership Award in 2014 by El... Concilio, right? Uh, family, family Services, and that's an organization based out of Oxnard. Is that is that right, Frank? Correct. Right. So, El Concilio Family Services for her, his outstanding contributions to improving the quality of life for the Latino community in Oxnard. So, uh, hello, Frank, and welcome to New Books in Latino Studies. Hello. Thank you for having me. Great. It's it's a pleasure, and uh, we we met uh, recently at the Sal Castro conference. And that's where I was introduced to your work. So I'm very excited to have you on the channel, particularly because it's it's close to home for me. I was born in Oxnard. I think I shared that with you, which is yeah. the site of your study. So uh, will you begin our discussion today by telling us a little bit about you know your personal background and, and mm-hmm. your pathway to becoming a professor? Yes, um, I too am uh, a product of Oxnard. I was born and raised here. And... Uh, uh, parents, my mother worked in the, the canneries and, and, and the industry of agriculture, as did my father. And, and growing up in Santa Paula, yeah. he was his family was involved in the citrus strike of 1941. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that that story was always uh, kind of in the background of conversation uh, as I as I came of age. And uh, so I went to the uh, local schools and high school in, uh, in Oxnard. And, and after graduating in 1983, I, I uh, commuted to Moorpark College, which is about, you know, 40 minutes away uh, from Oxnard. And, and then from there, I, I transferred to Cal State University of Fresno, and where I got my BA degree and MA degree in, in history. And once I finished there, I, I came back to Ventura County briefly and uh, was able to find a, a tenure-track position in, in history at, at Cypress College in, in Orange County. Uh, 
mm-hmm. where I ta- where I taught for uh, nine years. Before uh, returning back to Ventura County, I was lucky to get a tenure track position upon graduating from the Claremont Graduate School in, in 2001. Uh, I was able to um, get a position at, at Cal State University, Channel Islands, and I've been there ever since. Great, great. And tell me, uh, well, Cal State Channel Islands is, a, is one of the more recent uh, CSUs, is that correct? Yes, it, it's the it's the yes the most recent. Yes. It's the most recent. Okay, gotcha. Great. Yes. So you were among uh, the kind of inaugural faculty, right, to form the uh, history department and Chicano studies program. Is that right? Correct. Yes. The, the, the I arrived there in two thousand one, and I think the following years when the, it opened its doors to to the uh, service area in regards to teaching students, along with uh, I think it was thirteen uh, faculty the first the first cycle of tenure track faculty. Great. That's, that's neat. And to be able to come home, that's just what a privilege, right? Yes. Well, we've mentioned that, uh, that you're from, we're both from Oxnard. Uh, tell me a bit about then how this project, uh, evolved. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming it came out of a dissertation, but you know, why don't you tell us about that? Yes. Uh, well, after, uh, well, as I was approaching the completion of my coursework at, at the Claremont uh, Graduate uh, University, uh, I started becoming aware of uh, community studies that were being completed. Uh, one of one of them was uh, Gilbert Gonzalez's uh, *Labor and Community*. Uh, Martha Menchaca wrote a book on Santa Paula uh, regarding. It was titled uh, *The Mexican Outsiders*, uh, and Gilbert Gonzalez was on, on Orange County. And then uh, one of my classmates, who was on his way out as, as I was entering my program, uh, Matt Garcia, did his on the yeah uh, uh, and the uh, uh, the community of Pomona, the Padua players, right? And right. So that, that was that was part of the the movement in regards to historiography, looking at Chicano history more locally and not so much focusing on on Los Angeles. But looking at uh, looking at the community surrounding Los Angeles, exactly right. So I was asking questions. You know, like I said earlier, um, the, the labor struggle uh, of people in Ventura County was part of my family history too. So uh, I became aware of Tomas Amaguer's uh, journal article on the 1903 Sugar Beet Strike, and uh, in Labor History, I think it was published in 1985, and his book came out about 1992. And racial fault lines, which had a chapter on on that. Uh, so, like, wow, was, you know, Oxnard's on the map here. And Kerry McWilliams had referenced the sugar beet industry, and and uh, one of my favorite books is North from Mexico, which I have to reread again uh, because it's so important. And he starts the conversation in regards to Chicano studies. Right. So I I asked my advisor, uh, uh, Vicky Ruiz, who, who was there at the time. You know, how about how about I do a history of the Oxnard community in regards to the, the Mexican American population? And she said, "Sounds like a great idea. Uh, go with go with that." And and I did. And uh, over you know a period of years, I was able to uh, put together a dissertation. So that's the origins of of uh, you know curious unions. Is, is you know kind of following through in regards to what the history, the direction of the historiography was at at the time. Right, and how about you tell us a little about the the title, which which I enjoy, uh, "Curious Unions," and how that for you came to, uh, you know, I have a particular rootedness in in the place in, in Oxnard. Yes, 
Well, uh, again, uh, one of the aspects was uh, Matt Garcia's book, uh, A World of Its Own, is, is drawn from a section, if I remember correctly, either from uh, Terry McWilliams of Southern California, Island of Land, but I think it is more specifically within North from Mexico. And then uh, Douglas uh, Sackman wrote a book called uh, Orange Empire, if I remember mm-hmm. correctly. And that's another, you know, that's another phrase that was taken from uh, one of McWilliams' works. Uh, so I said, wow, you know, uh, you know if I want to frame my study and create an argument, what, what, what am I going to use? And uh, so I looked at more carefully at uh, North from Mexico and in his section on the Los Petrobaleros, right, the sugar beet workers. He, mm-hmm. he has a, and he, he makes a statement, is it was only in sugar beet where you have a curious union between, I forget the phrase, you know, corporations and, and, and farmers. Wow, curious union. Yeah, so there's something curious about this particular industry. And I went with that, right, and looking at cross-culturalism uh, between the Mexican community and, and you know, Asian-American community and European-American communities and, and seeing how it, it was a complicated uh, relationship. It wasn't just uh, the us against them, right, a uh, right. dynamic that you that usually uh, transpires ignoring alliances, ignoring, um, how would you say, um, relationships, uh, support, and also conflict. So I, I use Curious Unions uh, to to pull all my chapters together, and that was one of the early criticisms of, well, not a criticism, but feedback from uh, uh, an editor of, of a press. So, well, you have interesting... Uh, uh, you have an interesting dissertation, but how do all these chapters tie together? So that, right. that forced me to think about uh, how is the title going to inform uh, the book. So that's uh, that's where the uh, curious unions comes from. And I should have uh, been more explicit in the introduction in, in regards to that. Uh, but I do, mean, you know, footnote Carrie McWilliams is, is part of you know informing that early consideration of cross culturalism and, and alliances and and other relationships. Right. And, and, and so that part of, you know, the cross-culturalism, culturalism and alliances that form, uh, both within, uh, across with, with workers of, uh, you know, different ethnicities as well as within communities is something that's very consistent throughout the book. I was wondering, uh, we, we are going to talk a bit about, uh, some of the chapters in, in detail, but I was wondering if you could just, you know, foreshadow for us, what were some of the factors, you know, about Oxnard and its economy and, and its, you know, the communities that, that migrated there, Mm-hmm. Pull some things out for us that make it that, in your mind at least, that, that make it a bit unique. You know, it's you're making that the, you know your book, the scholarship arose at a time when uh, mm-hmm. Chicano Latino scholars were starting to look outside of LA and really outside mm-hmm. of urban uh, communities. Uh, so, what was it for you that 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 makes Oxnard stand out? Yes, that's a great question, and uh, and it also reminds me, you know, uh, of what you know, what uh, I was faced with. You know, because that's one of the that's one of the questions that you have to answer, right? How how is this work different from any other work, right? And and uh, the early historiography, uh, particularly in relationship to labor and community studies, was uh, particularly in Southern California was citrus. You know, the citrus industry is what. Um, what was defined this commercial commercial agriculture, right? And, exactly. And but that wasn't that wasn't the case in Oxnard. There, there, there was uh, citrus in Ventura County, and there was lemon specifically due to the climate in Oxnard. But what really boomed the the community 
and brought people from different parts of the United States and different parts of America and the world, talking about Asia specifically, uh, was sugar beets. <laughs> and nobody had really written about sugar beets in California. Uh, even the United States, up until uh, a year or two, there was a study done in the Midwest about sugar beets specifically and being the main focus. Uh, so that was my, my contribution that uh, invigorated my my writing in regards to um, complicating our understanding of Chicano history, Chicano history, and also California history in relationship to this uh, uh, industry that uh, had not been written about in detail. No, certainly, you're right. Citrus has been a, a very, you know, common theme uh, in particularly the history of, of uh, Chicanos and Mexican Americans in, in Southern California. And as you pointed out, a number of works that focused on that. And I, as you mentioned, you know, there wasn't a a monograph, you know, length type of work that focused on you know sugar beet workers and the sugar beet industry, which I found kind of surprising. As then reading through, uh, you know, the early parts of your book as you're describing, you know, the formation of the town or the industry, uh, mm-hmm. because uh, you know th- those that were involved in in getting the industry started in, in Oxnard were you know tycoons of sorts, right? I mean, these were captains of industry. I believe you use that 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 type of mm-hmm. a phrase and moniker. So, can you talk a bit about you know those people and and I think just um, Kind of for me, at least, how, how striking it was that there's there seemed to be a gap in scholarship uh, around what what seemed to be a, a incredibly viable and, and, and very lucrative industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, well, the United States was uh, was expanding in regards to uh, sugar production, and and the Oxnard brothers were these uh, were these robber barons uh, of sugar, and uh, so, so as we have the Carnegies in regards to steel and. And Rockefeller, in regards to oil, you know, Oxnard, uh, Henry T. Oxnard specifically, because there was four brothers, uh, was was the kind of the aggressive personality, or in regards to getting subsidies and getting tariffs to protect the production of domestic sugar against uh, competitors abroad, and uh, we see different uh, refineries then being placed uh, throughout California and also the Midwest. Uh, to take advantage of this, um, you know, federal government protections and subsidies from not only the national government but also state governments. Uh, so you get to, we got I got to see parallels in regards to other uh, emerging economies and how uh, it attracted people and uh, diverse populations and how there were these uh, accommodations and negotiations that had to be made as a result of this. So. Um, yeah, that, it was exciting for me, uh, and from there, then other industries would emerge, and I really got to learn how power worked <laughs> in regards to not just having uh, a specific uh, influence in one uh, system of production, but how they, they branch out to others. For example, the Oxnard brothers established a company uh, in regards to housing development, right? right and the, right. Manag- <laughs> the managers then became... Uh, uh, city councilmen and mayors and others would become part of the school district uh, trustees. And so how they began to influence or user influence in different areas of society. And, and that's, that's not unusual when you look at Los Angeles or you look at Orange County or, uh, or you look at the L.A. Times, right, uh, how they uh, have these different interests uh, that are, are integrated, right? So, uh, that, go ahead. No, I was going to say certainly. That's, 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 mm-hmm. that's what got me started. Me excited. 
Well, and what I was started to wonder, because um, you know, thinking more specifically of you know ethnicity and, and demographics, uh, is was there something to the production of sugar beets then that that brought in a larger proportion of uh, you know Asian labor? Uh, you know, mm-hmm. particularly of you know Japanese workers and, and others. Uh, I mean, those are yeah. those are. I mean, you know, Kerry McWilliams ex- explains this process in a number of his books. That uh, you know, there's a, a series of you know uses of ethnic labor, uh, the Chinese, and then you know the Japanese, and, and typically the Mexicans, and sprinkled among there were were some other groups as well. But typically, that's kind of the pattern that flow follows in Southern California. But it seemed to me, at least. Uh, that there were a bit more, uh, you know, Japanese and, and particularly Japanese workers in Oxnard, uh, and uh, and that for a while outnumbered. It seems like the the Mexicano population. So, is there something about the sugar beet industry, or at least at least the way they recruited their labor, that mm-hmm. made that you know the, the reality? Well, uh, not so, not so much what, what was taking place in the United States uh, in itself. But what was happening in their place of origin in Japan, I mean, these were countries that were going through transformation in regards to the Meiji Restoration, was trying to modernize and, and militarize, and, 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 the, and Japanese farmers found themselves uh, being heavily taxed, right? Uh, and many were looking abroad to make a living and, and, uh, and start new lives, so... Uh, there were pull, there were push factors, you know, in places not only in Japan but also later in the Philippines in regards to this international capitalism that was beginning to uh, you know accelerate accelerate uh, in the late 19th century and early 20th century, and and some of them uh, were you know were radical, some of them were socialists, and others you know had uh, anarchist views, and they they brought this uh, they brought this with them. Uh, so when when they were faced with uh, wage uh, wage cuts or unfair labor practices, uh, you know they they tapped into that and uh, and as the Japanese were entering, they were entering a time when the Chinese were already excluded. Exactly. <laughs> so we see exactly. this. We see this. We see this cycle of you know of recruitment and exclusion and a recruitment of a new group because of the uh, economy needing uh, you know cheap and exploitable labor. Right. Yeah, you're right. And that, that's something I just thought right after, uh, right when you started speaking about the, you know, the, the, the periodization with the Japanese migration, that this was happening just mm-hmm. after Chinese, the Chinese Exclusion Acts in the 1880s and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and also notably before the Mexican Revolution or in, in even prior to the Mexican Revolution, you know, the, the serious recession, even depression that the Mexican economy went through, which started, you know, a, you know, a more, or is it uh, you know in depth and expansive migration you know out of Mexico um, mm-hmm. to to the U.S. Right, so it seemed right that was just situated right in there. Yes, mm-hmm. and, and, that, that, and that, re- that brings up the, another book that I forgot to mention in the beginning was uh, Deborah Weber's Dark Sweat White Gold. Mm-hmm. In, in regard, she looks at these uh, refugees and emigres of, of the Mexican Revolution coming into California. And, and being central to the San, San Joaquin Valley cotton strike uh, right, in the 1930s. And, and, and that was powerful for me, the, uh, Deborah Weber's book, because uh, she challenged the notion that, that Mexican immigrant workers uh, were led by uh, white unionist radicals, right? Mm-hmm. And, 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 the, and the, the context behind that 
that original view that, that Professor Weber was challenging was that, uh, you know, that uh, Mexican immigrants couldn't organize themselves. <laughs> uh, they were agent. They had no agency of their own. They had to be saved by another group and led to the promised land. Right. And, right. and that, that wasn't the case. Right. They had, they had this political consciousness. They had this radicalization uh, that they brought with them. <laughs> right. And many of them were militarists in regards to being involved in the revolution and women. And, uh, and they utilized this, this history and, and, and challenging uh, oppression here in the U.S. No, certainly. And, and next to your, you know, the, the primary theme in the book, which is the, these cross-cultural unions that form both among agricultural laborers and, you know, industrialists and, uh, you know, the city bureaucratic elite and, and, and et cetera, uh, is also the uh, theme of worker resistance. And, and that's what comes through throughout the book. I mean, the, the book mm-hmm. starts in the 18, late 1890s, 1898 to be exact, uh, and almost immediately within, you know, five years, you know, you cover the 1903 strike, and, and essentially you carry that narrative all the way through up to mm-hmm. uh, 1961 when, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Chavez uh, had just finished a, an organizing effort through his work with the community service organization, and and, and certain, so certainly uh, that's definitely the case in, in you know, a major story a narrative that comes across in the book is a long history of Mexican worker resistance, and and then not just yeah. Mexican worker resistance on their own, but particularly in this space, right? How they form, you know, as you say, these curious unions with uh, mm-hmm. particularly Japanese laborers, or even uh, you know, if it's intra-ethnic coalitions, you know, with Mexicans, that's also happening as well. Yes. And, and within all that, I try to tie it into more national currents that are occurring. Uh, for example, as you mentioned, um, Cesar Chavez coming to Oxnard, you know, more of a national figure of the 1960s, uh, but also to to see how the uh, the CSO, the community service organization that, that Chavez was involved in, and his mentor, Fred Ross, uh, participated in and trained uh, Mexican communities throughout California was linked also to Sal Alinsky in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so that, that's what I really wanted to highlight. You know, another example of, of a curious union or a curious linkage, right, in terms right. of the Industrial Areas Foundation in Chicago being linked to you know, Oxnard, California. <laughs> uh, maybe not directly, but indirectly through uh, Chavez and Fred Ross. No, certainly, and I, and I think that's very interesting to think about. In you know, a lot of times in scholarship, when we're looking at you know transregional or you know mm-hmm. national, even multinational networks, we're you know we're typically following capital and uh, mm-hmm. you know the power that flows from that, whether it's bureaucratic state power, etc. Uh, but in this way, you've also identified you know another narrative. I mean, another uh, you know network focused on uh, you know social justice. That uh, again, you know, Solinsky's roots in Chicago uh, had mm-hmm. you know a number of you know touchstones or, or you know effects on uh, communities in uh, California, in particular, particularly Southern California, with uh, Fred Ross and his work with the the CSO, as well as uh, even earlier, Fred Ross was working in in some other uh, you know projects, I believe, with uh, I think it was Ignacio Lopez uh, forming urban links and things of that sort. So. Sure, yes, and, and his involvement during the Great Depression in regards to the camps throughout the San Joaquin Valley. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, so so there, you know, there, there's this web <laughs> that, that exists, and uh, these such individuals you know, had a long history and a long influence on, on people that you know, transcended their own, their own lives after they're gone. So that's, that's what I'm trying to um, highlight right. uh, in, in, my, in my work. 
Well, I want to be a little more self-indulgent here and have you talk a little bit more about uh, the formation of our hometown, because this is something that was really interesting to me. I just assumed, uh, you know, and I've never, you know, read much uh, about Oxnard, to be quite honest, outside of a few articles that touched on these type of labor mobilizations uh, around the early 20th century. And so I just typically presumed that since it was so close to uh, Ventura, that it was, you know, going to share this similar history of kind of a, you know, mission town-ish. You know, that sort of California kind of narrative of, uh, you know, the Spanish colonialism following, you know, the establishment of missions, et cetera, and, and kind of being these small mm-hmm. towns that eventually, you know, grow with the influx of, of uh, capital and, and white migration. But Oxnard was was really quite different. Uh, you pretty much narrate and tell that it's like this is an industrial town and in how it, it formed. Mm-hmm. And, and this is very much due to the Oxnard brothers and, and their desire to, and to see it. Well, they're seeing an opportunity, right, to mm-hmm. um, refine sugar in that location. So uh, will you talk a little bit more about that and, you know, just that, that, that idea of uh, how Oxnard forms as this industrial town and how it starts to pull people together in this way that you describe these curious unions. What are the curious unions that start to form with the Oxnard brothers and, and those that come to you know work with them to establish this space. Yes, uh, and it's a good question in regards to uh, Oxnard growing so fast because of the sugar beet uh, industry and the refinery, and it, it becomes the largest uh, city in the county uh, almost almost immediately, <laughs> and so that that uh, that. Um, defines it and its location next to Port Wainimi in regards where you know, ships come in and dock and on harbor. Uh, then the, 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 the uh, Southern Pacific Railroad that, that establishes a, a spur line there uh, and that, you know, and that you know, connects it you know, in regards to its coastline other, in Northern California and also the Los Angeles region. Uh, makes it a central hub, and uh, not only for the the economy and the economies that will merge, but also the bringing in of people, right? Uh, uh, people that were, as you know, Kevin Starr emphasizes, they were trying to reinvent themselves, right? right. Uh, they're, ch- they're chasing a dream, and uh, uh, at the same time, uh, there there are these ideas of uh, boosterism that's closely tied to again. Kerry McWilliams' idea of the Spanish fantasy heritage uh, that's really uh, uh, advanced in Santa Barbara, right, with their Spanish fiesta days that take place every summer. Uh, so again, that, uh, I, was, uh, I was fortunate. Well, not fortunate. I guess it was, it was just there in regards to what other, uh, what other uh, dynamics were occurring uh, throughout California, specifically Southern California and people, diverse people coming in having to negotiate with each other, right? And, and they're all trying to assert themselves uh, in, in the public space, right? Whether it be uh, Chinese New Year celebrations or Old Bond festivals of a Japanese-American community, uh, Mexican-American community in regards to Mexican Independence Day, uh, even uh, Irish communities or assemblies, Irish clubs in which uh, Adolfo Camarillo's brother uh, you know, becomes a member of of, of this uh, fraternal organization, right? Right, right. right. So, yeah, I mean, there was, a, uh, you know, the issue of curiosity or something that made you kind of watch, just wonder, you know, how is, how is this happening? And it, 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 again, it challenged the idea of, you know, this kind of, uh, this 
bipolar or, or you know, white hat versus black hats, the dynamic where it was, you know, you had, you had Mexican farm workers and Japanese farm workers that were, were working for the company union, right? Uh, and were undermining the interests of the larger Mexican community and Japanese community. And you have the Japanese Mexican Labor Association and in which the, the AFL gives recognition to the Mexican arm of that association, but not the, not the Japanese. Right. Because because of the anti Asian you know you know racism that was in the AFL and, and how uh, the Mexican uh, Labor Association or the Mexican arm of that association re- rejected the uh, AFL uh, affiliation based on that right so we're not going to betray our brothers uh, who who are with us throughout the, the struggle and I, wow that's a, that's a that's a powerful story there and 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 people who read the book I, I, they they. Uh, they highlight that themselves, right? It's, uh, it's because we have a lot of tension in different ways in our society, and I guess it's a, for them, history is a, a gives them hope that you know we can work through this. Yeah, no, in in ways truly, we that I think the contemporary, at least the you know late twentieth century you know era is seen more as the era of you know uh, cross cross culturalism and multiculturalism and i certainly agree with that in regards to you know general mass you know kind of acceptance of that in in forms right and particularly in media mm-hmm. and pop culture um but what's neat uh, again another thing that it's neat about your book is it shows the early roots of cross culturalism in you know space like california uh southern california here particularly oxnard um and and the role that you know workers and members of communities you know, so workers, particularly that were you know working with each other, you know, of different ethnicities and races, uh, that then had you know these different kind of little ethnic community hubs and start to form these organizations and celebrations. And initially, you tried to think you're thinking, okay, they are forming their little again um, more ethnic spaces that are kind of either self segregated in, in ways, but that's not. In, there's a form of segregation uh, in Oxnard, and we'll talk about that a bit more. But what you see kind of early in Oxnard is a lot of this cultural blending of people participating in different organizations, supporting each other's uh, patriotic celebrations. Uh, and so can you speak a bit uh, about that, about how those, the formation of those organizations started to blur the lines, as you mentioned, between the, the us versus Ven, you know, stark ethnic divides. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, one way in which that was done, they would make these calls in the newspapers, <laughs> uh, particularly the Oxnard Press Courier and the Oxnard Courier earlier, uh, is making calls in the newspaper for, the, for people outside of their own ethnic communities to, to participate and making them welcome. And, and uh, you know, people back then, you know, there wasn't much to do <laughs> and on a weekend, uh, particularly when, you know, Automobiles were not so prevalent in the early 20th century, uh, so you know, that was another dynamic. And uh, you know, sports, particularly baseball and boxing, you know, uh, it, it, it invited people to share space, right? And when, when space, such space was limited in terms of recreational space, uh, so there had to be these negotiations, right? And and once uh, these negotiations were made, uh, uh, it, it forced an examination of other uh, uh, spaces that maybe were not open to everybody in mm-hmm. regards to school segregation, right? And and this was uh, uh, this was another thing that would develop in the particularly in the middle of the 20th century. And looking at the schools, and by the 1960s, you have uh, uh, the 
the CSO particularly, but also other groups of people begin to look at the Oxnard schools and see how they're segregated based on geography. Uh, and uh, so, so you have this cooperation, cross-culturalism, but also, you know, that the racism uh, that defines much of the, much of the county and specifically Oxnard is there still. <laughs> and, I, and so my, I guess the tension in my writing of the book is how do you emphasize cross-culturalism, but at the same time don't deny Exactly. Or don't overshadow at the same time the, the, the existence of white supremacy. Right. Exactly. And how, and how it works out systematically. Right. And that's, that's exactly what I was going to say because it's, it's cross-culturalism that's occurring, but yes, it's occurring within the, the broader structure of white supremacy. Right. So it's, yeah. it's, it's not that white supremacy was so totalizing that it prevented any type of cross-culturalism, even between people of color and so-called whites or Anglos or ethnic whites, but that, uh, you know, the, the dominant form of social and economic organization, uh, mm-hmm. really did reflect much more the system of white supremacy rather than a, of course, you know, an egalitarian or even, you know, multicultural society. And I think that's probably maybe a part of the difference between, you can maybe parse this out a little bit more for me. The difference between cross-culturalism and multiculturalism, perhaps, is mm-hmm. with cross-culturalism, you know, there, there is a flow, uh, if you will, mm-hmm. between, you know, socialization, um, you know, across different ethnicities. Um, but it, there's certainly it's not on an equal plane and certainly it's not the norm, right? Yes. Yes. It's, it's not the norm. And, and it's also not, um, it's not given, <laughs> you know, it's something that has exactly. to be right. uh, worked at. Right. And, and also people have to make accommodations to each other. And, and sometimes, uh, people who hold power don't want to uh, give it up so easily. Right. And, and, uh, so that, that's one thing I, I try to, uh, tell the story about, but at the same time is uh, tell the story in a narrative form where I'm not being, uh, I'm, I'm making the argument by way of the story and not, not being, how would, how would I say this? Uh, so, uh, academic or, or being, uh, you know, you know, I, I guess, uh, I guess I was speaking to Frank Bardicke one time over lunch and, and he brought this up because he, he said, yeah, so how do you, t- how do you make an argument? But, but at the same time, just, just tell the story, right? And that's, right. I guess, uh, telling the argument more implicitly, that's what I'm getting at. I, I'm, I'm implicitly telling the, 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 the argument, but at the same time, through way of a story. And that's, that's what I, I, I try to do and limit, and limit my use of uh, more academic language at the same time, which is sometimes I feel I have to use because that's what people do at conferences, but I, right. I, I don't feel comfortable with. Right, right. No, I, I agree with that, and uh, and no, that certainly comes across. You know, there there is a sense of, um, I think, so some of maybe maybe these are some of the, these academic words, but you know, there's there's a notion of agency that's involved here, um, but it's also understood that that's happening within structures, and and but that you know contingency is there, so you're not being overly prescriptive mm-hmm. in this narrative, saying this is exactly the way relationships occurred, uh, either yeah. things were excessively you know cross cultural um, or. Mm-hmm. You know, again, totalizing. You know, the being you know separatist or or um, segregationist. Um, but it really yes. was a mix of the two, and um, you you really start to get into that. I think uh, a really good chapter that addresses that is a third chapter, which talks about the curious union of economic integration and spatial mm-hmm. segregation within yeah. uh, this urban space. And I say mm-hmm. urban. I think that's another phrase from Kerry McWilliams, right? It's a combining of the urban and the rural showing a space that's in between. Is that correct? 
Correct. Yes, and where you know, Oxnard uh, and communities like Oxnard, uh, we're not we're not rural <laughs> uh, and strictly agricultural. But at the same time, they they were not uh, Oxnard was not the big city like Los Angeles. It was it was an in, it was an in between community uh, in which uh, people worked in in various industries of agriculture, but at the same time they lived in a in, a, in an emerging urban environment, right? And, and that's. Uh, that's what I brought up, and, and the, the, the chapter three is called segregated integration. And I went to uh, years back. There was a commemoration of the Mendez versus Westminster case, and uh, one of the panelists that spoke was Gilbert Gonzalez, and and he he spoke about the issue of uh, how places like Los Angeles and, and places like Orange County, you know, they were they were integrated spaces, or I think he used the word segregated, integrated places. And I go, wow, this, this, this doesn't make sense to me. What does that mean? Right. Well, at the same time, you're having integration. You know, you have uh, you know, the, the workplace is integrated to a certain extent, right? But uh, the living spaces, the residencies, you know, the schools are, are segregated, right? Mm-hmm. So you're having both at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's what uh, that's another aspect of this, you know, curiosity. You know, how is this? How's this happening? You know, you can't have uh, Mexican schools in which you know there are limited resources, right? So uh, then you would have you know schools within schools, right? In which and, exactly and they, 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 they seem integrated, <laughs> right? But within within the schools and classrooms, uh, they're segregated at the same time. So that's right. It's it's uh, my work as well addresses uh, Orange County and picks up uh, somewhat from. Where uh, Gil Gonzalez leaves off, but you're exactly right in pointing out what what I've noticed about uh, you know Southern California is this this mixture of integration and segregation, and that mm-hmm. was that I think was very particular, perhaps particular to um, you know Southern, Cal- Southern California agriculture and the way it developed, but that was dif- different definitely than other places, particularly either in Texas for um, the ethnic Mexican community or even in the South for uh, African Americans, uh, where you you have. I think more stark lines. Again, that's not that's not ever to say that there was never any crossing uh, that did occur. Yeah. We we know that there's tons of scholarship that covers that in all places um, mm-hmm. throughout the United States. But that it, there was this this really uh, you know interesting and per- perplexing mixture of integration and segregation. As you said, sometimes it happened within even like within a school, it happened mm-hmm. within the building, right? So the building itself, yeah. the school <laughs> itself, because of limited funds, a community yeah. may only have one school, but within that school, with under the, the its roof, right, there was yeah. segregated classes and and there was even a a different type of, of instruction, you know, for, for children of different ethnicities. Definitely. Yeah. And, and listening to the oral history interviews, uh, uh, you know, forced me to look at these complexities, right? When people uh, would say, uh, for example, one person in the book is uh, Robert Vias or Bob Vias, and you know, he he detailed, you know, back in the earlier earlier 20th century or the, in the 1940s and 50s, you know, there were two types of work, right? There's work in the shade and work so, uh, work in the shade and work outside the shade, right? And and that's how, how that dynamic had a racial component to it, right? Where it was the Mexican workers were out, were out in the sun, right? And, and usually the managers were working in within the, the factory, at least early in the beginning, right? And this become uh, more nuanced as, as, uh, as the 20th century moves in uh, to the latter 20th century. But uh, how, you know, again, the, the complexity and the progression and the transformation of uh, of the community was 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 one thing that I always try to uh, explain, 
and not give a kind of a more um, black and white uh, dynamic to it or, or narrative. If I could use that term there. No, certainly. We've been talking a bit about the community and, and, and the way it formed, again, Oxnard being an industrial town, and it it forms, mm-hmm. essentially, there are about four Mexican um, barrios or enclaves that, you know, get positioned throughout the town, some of them, uh, portions of it being like the adobes uh, being specifically built by uh, mm-hmm. ABSC, you know, sugar, uh, the sugar refinery, right, as company mm-hmm. housing. Yeah. Um, and they saw that really as, as this benefit, right, that, uh, you know, mm-hmm. As an attract, you know, to attract the type of workforce and the quantity and stability of the workforce that they wanted, right? Because labor, sure. labor was always, I mean, as it is in a number of agricultural towns, I think it was, it was always really a primary driving concern, right? In, in Oxnard, how to manage the necessary amount of labor and keep that on hand, uh, right? Correct. For, for the, you know, the fluctuations of the season and the different types of crops. Yeah. And so that's doing more with the, the community, how it starts to, to form in this mixture of integration and, and, and segregation. In the middle of the book, you also get to a, a series of um, uh, strikes, you know, and, and, and labor type of you know, movements and resistance. And particularly, you cover the 1903 uh, and 1933 uh, sugar beet strikes. And then there's also a strike, and I believe it was more of a citrus strike in 1941. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. So, can you walk us through, and you know, it's kind of a you know jump, if you will, in in, in time. But there are, there are differences between these movements. So, will you, uh, you know, these particular labor strikes? Will you highlight those for us? Let us kind of walk us through that that little history there between 1903 and 1941. Um, how yeah. Mexican workers are resisting, and what's the significance of each one of those moments? Yes. Well, yes. That's you're forcing me to think about uh, things I hadn't even thought about in, in a while, and maybe for the first time right now is you know is that you know one of the differences that you know just the uh, the, the the product itself you know from in 1903 and 1933 is you know, these are sugar beets right and mm-hmm. and how in Oxnard they largely you know, we have lemons in Oxnard and and the strike is involved not only. Uh, in the citrus strike, but it's a county-wide citrus strike. So Oxnard is part of a larger uh, labor movement uh, that is occurring, uh, and it's not just happening in the orchards, it's mm-hmm. happening pre- predominantly in the, in the packing houses uh, of citrus, right? Uh, so uh, that's another uh, difference, and, and where there was more, uh, in, uh, how would you say it, more of an integrated struggle in 1903 with Japanese and Mexicans, you know, right. in, in 1941, it's, it's predominantly a, a, a Mexican working class movement right, right, or, or right. struggle right. That, that emerges. And uh, so those, those are, you know, a few uh, 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 different a- aspects of, of these strikes and, and how it serves to later, you know, attract the, the notice of um, the United Packing House Workers of America in, in the 1950s as they're, as they're beginning to uh, struggle against uh, the industry of citrus. Uh, move, uh, uh, move the packing sheds into the fields and orchards, right? And so they feel threatened because they're protected by labor law. Uh, uh, by labor law, in terms of being a, a being a, enjoying protection in the packing houses, but if they're moving uh, packing sheds into the fields, they're losing protection there. So how how the United Packing House Workers of America saw that? Well, Oxnard has this tradition here and has a strong labor legacy there and it's how so how we have 
you know, Saul Linsky, and, and I'm forgetting the president's name of the uh, United Packing House Workers of America, but they, they look Helstein? at Oxnard as, as servant. Yes, Ralph Helstein, right? They right. look at Oxnard as, as a place to build a, a, a labor movement by first uh, creating these social networks and, and services uh, under the CSO uh, to create this uh, network of, of unionism or organization to later hand off to the, the packing house workers of America. Uh, so, uh, you know, so sugar beets uh, being one product and later on in the 1940s, we're looking at citrus, uh, sugar beets pri- primarily on the Oxnard Plain, mm-hmm. uh, even though sugar beets was, you know, was being grown all throughout uh, California, specific Southern California, but, uh, but, by 1941, the, the labor struggle becomes a, a county struggle mm-hmm. in which you see, uh, you know, different uh, uh, individuals, personalities, and groups uh, uh, unite uh, to, to fight. Uh, uh, another robber baron, if you will, is, you know, Charles Teague, you know, of the right. uh, uh, Funkis Corporation and who, who founds uh, the, the uh, Associated Farmers, which is, which is an organization uh, many label it as a vigilante group organized and developed to bust unions. Exactly. Right. <laughs> uh, exactly. Yeah. So that's another thing you know, in regards to the, that, that difference uh, that occurs in how uh, you know, Charles Teague is, you know, he's, he's like the Oxnard brothers before him, or, I mean, they kind of overlap also. You know, they were influential not only in the industry, but also using their economic might in regards to uh, laws and, 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 and also the politics and the federal government's uh, force in it, which really, really, uh, really is exposed with the uh, Brasetto program in which, which Cesar Chavez challenges in, in Oxnard and Ventura County in, mm-hmm. in 1958-59. So that's uh, yeah, no, I agree, and I think that's what, that's one of the neat things, and it's coming together better for me now as you're talking as well. That you know these these three different strikes, and then later the the struggle, uh, you know, against the Bracero program uh, with Helstein and and Chavez and the CSO, uh, you know, that that signals these major transitions uh, both in, in the industry itself, you know, the the primary, you know, the driving um, crops that are driving the agricultural industry in. in Southern California, I mean, at least in Oxnard. First, it is the sugar beet industry, and it's these, you know, robber barons type, you know, capitalist tycoons that form that industry there and, you know, again, have deep mm-hmm. pockets, deep connections into, you know, state and federal bureaucrats, you know, to get the, um, uh, uh, okay, it's, my mind's going blank here. The, um, you know, there's a certain type of benefits that they are in need of, uh, to establish the industry. And then that transitions, uh, you know, after the 1930s, really into the 1940s with the centrist industry. Uh, and, mm-hmm. you know, that also the ethnic composition of that workforce is changing. So in, in 1903, like I said, it's a, it's an, it's that rare moment when you see this real cross cultural, you know, solidarity between Mexicans and Japanese workers, even, you know, Outside the bond, you know, the, the issue of class, because you have the, you know, both the workers themselves and then you have the labor contractors that are coming together and, you know, fighting, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the refinery and, you know, their, their attempt to, uh, reduce both of their, you know, influence, you know, and, and particularly the pay and, and, uh, that becomes kind of the, the unifying structure for that moment in, in 1903, which in 1933 yeah. isn't as successful, uh, part of that has to do right with the, the depression um, and mm-hmm. excess. Uh, you know, instead of having a, a lack of labor or a shortage of labor, you can have an excess of labor, and so it makes that cross-cultural uh, 
uh, cross-cultural and cross-class coalition a little bit more difficult. And then, as you mentioned, in the mm-hmm. 1940s, it's it's now primarily Mexicano working uh, you know, labor force in citrus, in, um, I believe, the strawberry industries established by that time also. Is that correct? It's mostly citrus, though. Is that correct? Yes. Right. Correct. So you have this, you know, the transitioning of, of crops that's occurring, uh, and then uh, the 1940s, as you mentioned as well, you have you know the Brasero issue, which which starts slowly in the you know the early 40s, but then you know by the the, the middle, the end of the war, really, you know, Oxnard becomes uh, what this you know central place and site for Braceros. Mm-hmm. In fact, what it has one of the or the largest camp Bracero camp in the in the country, right, is established in Oxnard. Yes. Correct. The, the Buena Vista camp and and how you know the the Bracero program you know uh, highlighted or intensified uh, divisions within the Mexican community itself and that was multi-layered. So you had the, the Bracero who could be the the most recent male immigrant population, then you had a Mexican immigrant population that was more familial uh, and uh, long-term, you know, had a longer existence of residence. Uh, then you had the Mexican-American generation, as, as we, uh, we kind of identify as, as another group. And then by the early 1960s and the mid-1960s, you had this emergence of kind of the Chicano generation. So the, the Mexican community itself is, you know, has... Uh, these these different populations within it, right? And uh, and uh, they have different allegiances or different levels of allegiances to each other, right? I mean, uh, just because you had long-term Mexican immigrants uh, that maybe were competing for the same jobs uh, or being displaced by Brasados, they, they, there was this empathy and sympathy for them as, you know, these are our brothers who are being exploited, uh, while at the same time they're, they're complaining because uh, they're being displaced by them, right? And uh, so uh, these these are the sorts of uh, dynamics and complexities that that have to be uh, uh, looked at carefully and, and, and explained, right? And for example, um, Cesar Chavez's um, opposition to the use of undocumented immigrants, right? And, and the language he uses for that, which is which which was a language. Uh, for example, one term of uh, uh, being wetback, right? Now, this was a, a term that was used by the GI Forum. This was a uh, the Mexican-American GI Forum. This was a, uh, a term that was used by Ernesto Galarza, who was an immigrant himself, right, uh, who challenged the Bracero program and, and it, it, as a system of oppression and others and, and Cesar Chavez. And uh, because the, their organizing was being affected by the introduction of undocumented immigrants by, by the industry, right? Uh, so how – and this is still a, a, a topic of discussion in 2016, right? So I think we can use the history as, as, a, as a way of understanding and informing uh, this, these sorts of um, – these sorts of complexities and other uh, forces of time. No, I, I completely agree. That's I think that's one of my biggest draws into history. It's uh, you know I I uh, see so many parallels you know with the the present in the past. I think that's what it, one of the things initially spurred my interest in history, and particularly in the moments that we're talking about here. These different strikes that happen happen along the Oxnard Plain, highlighting the shifting of of industry, the, the shifting of, you know, uh, workforce, um, you know, politics around it as well. You have all these moving parts and players, um, you know, but there are some, you know, again, the, 
the the issue of you know worker uh, exploitation you know is the constant throughout right the power of capital and industry its influence to uh, both organize um, you know and structure space as as well as rights privileges within the communities I mean all of these are constants and they continue even up to to our day. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, as you mentioned, within the the 1940s, the big issue really becomes the braceros, and particularly it's this mm-hmm. issue of how the laborers contracted and how, how these, uh, you know, the 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 farmers association, uh, the associated farmers, that is Ventura County farmers, uh, associated farmers, uh, really find sure. ways to circumvent. Uh, you know, find loopholes, not even loopholes, but really just circumvent the law, right? Then they figure out ways <laughs> to block out uh, yeah. domestic workers. And so this is the issue. Sure. This is the context that, that uh, Cesar Chavez comes into. I loved the chapter mm-hmm. of the, the title of the last chapter six, which is creating Caesar. And that's why I wanted to, to mm-hmm. pretty much round out our discussion here uh, is if you could, ex- you know, explain that, you know, what was it about Oxnard? You know, how did that, that create, the the person that we've you know come to know uh, you know both in in myth and reality there's been a lot of recent scholarship on on Chavez um, so tell mm-hmm. us a little bit more about you know his time in Oxnard what what do we learn about uh, Caesar in Oxnard that, yeah. that perhaps maybe we didn't know uh, or you didn't haven't has, haven't known as clearly as you discuss in in that chapter yes uh, well one is that uh, you know he, he his early childhood was uh, uh, was in Oxnard uh, uh, for for a moment in, in time, uh, but it was one of the places in which you know he moves from rural Arizona uh, and he comes to Oxnard. That's this urban environment, right? Uh, and he understands that this this is a different place. You know, it's not Los Angeles, but uh, it, it, you know, La Colonia, in which he stayed with his family, has been identified as a pressure cooker, right? And mm-hmm. and he details that he details that in in the Jock Levy book, you know, in regards to um, uh, the autobiogra- autobiography of a movement, right, in terms of uh, his biogra- autobiography, right, he understood that this was, this was a tense place to live. And so they, they leave, but they come, he comes back, and he details uh, sugar beet work as, you know, being one of the more brutal forms of agricultural work. And he, in the Jock Levy book, he details it as almost like being nailed to the cross, you know, being crucified, Mm-hmm. Uh, and even though he he tends to exaggerate and num- particularly in terms of numbers and marches at times, but that that struck me. And, and he comes back to uh, Oxnard, and as a community organizer, and this is where the creating Caesar comes from. Uh, he comes in as a uh, a community organizer, but his struggle ultimately against the Bracero program transforms him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he moves away from uh, uh, being a community organizer to being a labor organizer, right? Uh, be- because the CSO didn't want to go that direction. You know, they mm-hmm. wanted to maintain in terms of community services and, and empowerment, and where he wanted to make it, he wanted he wanted a, a union arm, he wanted a labor arm of a CSO, and they wouldn't do it. So he left. Uh, he left to create his own union, right? And and that's where. Uh, uh, that's where the title comes from, you know, creating Caesar and, you know, utilizing Roman history to, you know, like, hail Caesar. You know? <laughs> uh, so I had to, you know, part of the, part of the book and part of each chapter, you, you have to make it a, uh, you, you have to make it enticing to read, right? And, right. and that was my way of, of doing that. You know, this, this is Caesar in, in transformation. Uh, and he, he takes the Oxnard experience, 
and he he goes to the San Joaquin Valley in Delano with it, right? And, right. and, and that's what I try to do in, in the concluding chapter as a result of his experience uh, against the agricultural industrial complex, right? And in which Ernesto Galarza identifies and begins to define and Caesar, uh, you know, Cesar Chavez takes it uh, in, in, into the San Joaquin Valley in regards to fighting Goliath. Yeah, and in in regards to particularly also uh, with Oxnard and why Oxnard, because as you mentioned, he was in um, the San Joaquin Valley before. He was in, you know, he was in uh, San Jose and helped to establish the community service organization there, became, uh, you know, its most successful organizer uh, and seemed to really be quite happy. And then uh, it's the, the really the collusion, if you will, uh, maybe that's the wrong term, of um, Alinsky, Ross, and Helstein, who developed this plan, and I think it's named mm-hmm. the, the Helstein plan, uh, that's essentially they, they identified Oxnard and particularly the um, United um, Packing House workers, Helstein, he's, he's leading that, right, as, as a site to um, make an attack, uh, I think it is, uh, right, on um, the Brissetto program. And that's particularly their yeah. target. They want to attack, uh, you know, the ways in which the, the growers and the Farmers Association are uh, systematically mm. violating public law 78 by not hiring domestic workers. And so Oxnard becomes a place where that they really focus their interest. And what seemed to come across more in in this chapter than I've read in a, a few other recent books on Chavez, and maybe it's just because I missed it, um, uh, but it seems here that, that Chavez was reluctant to go to Oxnard, right? I mean, he was even reluctant, maybe even, it, it, sounds, it seems to me here, to, to go and organize farm workers, essentially, that he was happy as a community organizer, uh, that's what he wanted to do. Um, yeah. I'm not saying he didn't have sympathies for farm workers, but at at that mm. point in San Jose, it didn't seem like that was necessarily his big push. Um, no, is is that right? Yeah, that's exactly correct. And he was reluctant and was questioning. You know, you know, it's almost a why me? You know, what, what what can I do? Right? And and even even to the point where uh, it took him a while to accept the fact that the Brasetto program was an issue. Right. Uh, with with the uh, with the community, right? He was, he was he was holding his house meetings and and and, and looking at his archive in, in Detroit uh, and looking read newspaper articles and looking at uh, the Jack Levy books and other other biographies of him. He seems to be questioning. You know, well, they're telling me this about Brasetos, but you know, there's got to be something else to it, right? Right. <laughs> uh, to, to the point where you know he's almost you know cannot deny it anymore and. Uh, yeah, so he is reluctant. Uh, he doesn't want to go that way because that's not that's not what he's about. And I think that aspect of being wanting to have a, uh, an organization that was, and this was this was brought up in the recent historiography that you know he has he has the United Farm Workers Union, but he's really not interested in 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 a union. He's he's interested in something much more loftier or right, community-based, right. right? So I think yeah. he reverts back to being a, uh, you know, a, a community organizer at the end uh, than he is a kind of a, a labor leader, right? And because uh, he doesn't want to be, uh, I guess I, maybe it's the wrong term to say, bothered with the day-to-day uh, duties and minutia of labor organizing, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. The, the, the details, right? He, he wants something 
much more grander, and uh, and I think that's part of the downfall of the uh, the United Farm Workers Union. That you know the the the, the labor component, the labor organizing, nuts and bolts of labor organizing, was really not what he was interested in. Right, he's more interested in elevate, elevating the community. <laughs> right, yeah, he was much more interested. You're right in in forming a in, in the recent works on on Chavez, particularly bring this out. His interest really was in mm-hmm. in a poor people's movement. That that was his mm-hmm. struggle within the CSO. Uh, he saw mm-hmm. right. It's it's more middle class uh, focus. It was really bothersome and troubling, and is a reason why one of the primary reasons why he initially left. Um, yes. and was part of his grumblings while he was within that organization. Um, so that certainly that that fits into that. The other thing I wanted to highlight, because there seems to me there's these two parts. You know, it's within Oxnard when he his time in Oxnard when he decides to commit himself to farm workers. So that's that's one part of it, right? Kind of to to use his community organizing tactics to organize farm workers, and he becomes really passionate about that. And when he leaves Oxnard, that's what he wants to do: is work with farm workers. Uh, and then the other thing is, uh, however, that you know Chavez comes into Oxnard. Uh, already with a built, uh, you know, with a, a pre-built infrastructure, if you will, of, you know, Mexican-American, both a, a history of resistance, but then of community organizing. And so can you yeah. speak uh, for that for a couple of minutes, just how all the work that had been done really in, in the previous, say, 40 years or, you know, more mm-hmm. so, like 50, 60 years to Chavez yeah. getting there, it sets the stage for him to, to essentially, you know, I'm not saying he didn't, you know, he, he did come in, he worked hard, but he was able to plug himself in with a network. Um, you know, there, for example, there was the, the Oxnard, uh, Civic Improvement Association, right? That was already sure. there. And that, that essentially becomes the CSO, you know, just, it's almost like a, a name change to some extent. Uh, right. That's so right. he essentially just gets to plug himself right in there. Uh, but, mm-hmm. but that wasn't it. You know, there was still just, there was a lot more, a much deeper history of labor and community organizing Oxnard that, that made what happened there possible. Yes. And, and in regards to mutualistas, in regards to like, like the Oxnard Civic Improvement Association and the baseball clubs that exist, the Oxnard aces that existed and, uh, the 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 veteran uh, citrus workers, agricultural workers, uh, labor organizers that were in the county still, uh, you know, yes, yeah, the foundation was there, and that that was uh, that was that was important, uh, and it, or it is important in regards for students of history, and um, when I say students of history, I mean students who are all people who are all interested in history, but specifically people that are in the schools, whether they be uh, uh, the teachers and the college professors and college students to recognize uh, that, you know, yes, uh, Cecil Child was important, but I wanted to move away from the great man theory exactly. or historiography, right? Uh-huh. And look at, at how Cecil Chavez was part of a larger movement in which, you know, he was really to, that, that, that we, we highlight, but we shouldn't ignore that, you know, there were people that were sacrificing their daily lives to, to, to improving and, and elevating the interest of the community as a whole. And, and even after Chavez leaves, you know, the CSO still exists in Oxnard and, and it goes countywide and, and you see the La Raza Unida party emerge later on in the 1970s. And uh, so that uh, the economic condition doesn't change much. So the, the community still has to organize and, and, and struggle, right? And, right. And, and, and various ways. And, and that's one of the takeaways I wanted people to, 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 to leave with, right? And that's what I'm trying to do now in regards to looking at the Chicano movement in Ventura County to see how, you know, it, it didn't end with Chavez leaving, right? It, it continues and 
uh, he comes back uh, as Citrus Strikes emerge in the 1970s, but he comes back more as a, as a, as a supporting in a supporting role rather than in a leading role. Right. right. And so that's what I'm looking at. Well, that's great. He, are, he becomes a figure, right? He becomes a figure for, for college students, right? In right. Morpaw College, Ventura College, and UCSB, mm-hmm. UC Santa Barbara, UCLA. He becomes a, a national figure of, of, a, of a person that's leading poor people mm-hmm. uh, to, a, to a better life, right? No, I think it's right. And I, I see so many parallels, um, you know, to, uh, you know, the African-American civil rights movement, black power movement, particularly with the symbolism of King and, and other movement leaders that uh, and much of the you know recent uh, works in, in those fields as well have, have pointed out very similar things. Right. That, you know, for example, with Selma. Right. That, uh, you know, Martin Luther King comes into Selma and thanks to SNCC, you know, and, and other organizers, right? He has a network that he's able to plug into that, you know, like Chavez, you know, start, you know, they, they had already been doing voter registration, voter education, and that's, mm-hmm. you know, essentially uh, some of the things that uh, that uh, had been going on previously in Oxnard. And, and so Chavez yeah. comes in, he's able to launch a, a massive voter registration campaign that's incredibly successful, and, and they have these successes, mm-hmm. and, and you explained that already, but it, the, the parallels to me as well are, are what's really interesting that you see this uh, – uh, you know, also right with other groups, mm-hmm. uh, other other movements, and you you already started talking about. We well, already really really covered my last question, which I was really interested mm-hmm. to hear about what you're doing now. And it, you mentioned more; it's 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 an extension, or, uh, you know, of the history going forward, uh, more with the mm-hmm. Chicano movement. What happens later in Ventura County? Anything else you want to mm-hmm. say specifically about uh, this next project, and uh, maybe even when we can expect to see it? Yes, well, I'm, I'm shooting for. Uh uh, 2000. Uh, we're, we're, we're 2016 now. I'm looking for 2019, uh, mm-hmm. three years from now. Uh, but I'm, I'm looking at the, the the development of Chicano movement in Ventura County in, in different ways. Uh, for example, uh, uh, in the in the since uh, Ventura County didn't have a public higher education uh, university back then, you know, looking at c- the community colleges, you know, mm-hmm. how did uh, UMass develop in, in Ventura College. How did and what did what were they concerned with, or in Moorpark College, right? And and how what were the intersections of, of the student movement in these community colleges with the Vietnam War? And uh, and where do they go, right? And um, a large number of them uh, go either to UC Santa Barbara or they go to UCLA. So they're they're plugged into the you know the the kind of moratorium movement, right? And in LA, or, or they're plugged into the uh, the movements that are taking place in Santa Barbara. Then uh, I'm also looking at the the, the strikes that are, that occur. One of them being the uh, strawberry strikes. You know, as uh, agriculture becomes more specialized, we have you know um, different forms of agriculture, and, and now we have strawberries, right? And and what's the role of the United Farm Workers uh, in in these strikes, right? And and also not only that, but Salinas, right? And one of the things that happens is that strawberry workers in Oxnard want the same uh, labor gains that, that were achieved in Salinas in, in Oxnard, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So so again, this this trans regional connection, right? And and the issue of segregation. You have the walkouts in in, in Los Angeles. Well, there were walkouts here in Ventura County too. <laughs> uh, so it's it's looking at the larger movement, uh, but more locally again and. And one of the reasons why this is happening with what I'm doing is because I'm from Oxnard, I'm from Ventura County, and I still live in Ventura County, so I have the the luxury, the the benefit, the fortune 
of knowing people uh, who who have that history behind them and who are participants and are willing to talk with me, right? And mm-hmm. and, and that's a, that's one of the uh, points that's you know when you write history, particularly a history that relies on oral histories, and you, you got to have those relationships. Of, you just can't make cold calls, right? And, right? and sometimes you do make the cold call, but you have to have somebody that's going to introduce you first, right? right, right. Uh, saying, saying, hey, so and so, Frank is okay. He wants doing exactly. this. Exactly. Can he talk to you about this? And rather than just somebody out of the blue, right? Which I've done right. too, and, and not always successfully, right? right. <laughs> No, I feel you. I'm I, I'm going through the same thing <laughs> in Orange yeah, County. Is that right? You know, and I not you know I don't have the deep connections in Orange County. I'm you know I was born in Oxnard, lived there till I was ten. Mm-hmm. We moved to San Diego. So really, my my introduction to Orange County and trying mm-hmm. to get in those networks is it's not as natural. But you're right. It's there are good people there, uh, and mm-hmm. and a lot of it does you know rely on uh, those networks. And and for me, I'm, I'm you know particularly I'm still very much drawn to community history. I think. Uh, you know, there's still just there's so much. I think there's a temptation when there's, you know, a region, you know, regional regional histories. That's part of the movement that we started with. That was, you know, say launched by those like you know Gil Gonzalez and, and others that started to say, hey, you know, we focus too much on urban LA. Mm-hmm. There's you know a lot that has to do with the particularities of space outside of LA. Uh, and yes, we acknowledge its connections, but uh, we need these other histories. And so a lot of work uh, over the last twenty years or so is really in. It's, I think it's even been more than that since Kill published his book, and you know the community type histories that were that were coming out of the, you know the um, the nineteen late eighties and early nineteen nineties. Um, there's just so much more work. Uh, you know, I am completely in agreement that needs to be done because things like this. You know, your book here is, is another thing. Just particularly reminded me as I was reading through it, and I was able to notice you know the differences uh, of you know between Oxnard and even just you know uh, again L A was just. Uh, I'm trying to think the mileage. What is just you know an hour south as as you drive it, but I'm not even sure what the mileage right. is. Um, mm-hmm. And you know Orange County similarly, just you know thirty you know forty miles ish. Um, I think to Anaheim from downtown L.A. So it's yeah, uh, it's, it's definitely they're definitely close spaces, but the you know the differences in the history and the, the communities and the people and how they experienced them particularly, which is what these mm-hmm. histories focus on: how the people lived those experiences and dealt with it and. I responded to it is there are those important variations that need to be covered. So, uh, yeah. you know, I'll have to say thanks for your work and thanks for coming on to our channel. I've, I really appreciate the time and appreciate reading the book, getting to learn a lot more about where I came from and, you know, mm-hmm. picturing, you know, my family when they were there, uh, you know, which my, my mom's side of the family were, were working in those fields. Uh, wow. you know, so it was, it, it taught me a lot about that, that place. So I appreciate that and, and certainly encourage our listeners to, to, to get a copy of it and read it. And there, there are a number of interesting points, you know, as we've discussed and we tried to cover some of them, but there's a lot more. So thanks again, Frank. Okay. I appreciate your time. Well, I'm, I'm happy to hear that DJ and thank you for having me on your program. Certainly. And we'll, we'll talk again. Thank you for tuning into New Books in Latino Studies. I'm David James Gonzalez, the host of the channel, and I hope you have enjoyed my conversation today with Frank P. Barajas, author of Curious Unions, Mexican-American Workers and Resistance in Oxnard, California, 1898-1961, again published by the University of Nebraska Press in 2014. If you'd like to contact me, please uh, send me an email to newbooksandlatinostudies at gmail.com or feel free to reach out via Twitter and Facebook. Also encourage you to download our podcast and subscribe to it via iTunes or Stitcher.